You are listening to the podcast of the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. CBMW exists to promote the Bible's teaching on men, women, and marriage. Learn more at cbmw.org. I'm Colin Smothers, Executive Director of CBMW. My name is Denny Burke. I'm the President of CBMW, and it is our pleasure to welcome to the program today uh, Dr. Kyle Clunch, who is an Assistant Professor of Christian Theology at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Welcome to the program, Kyle. Glad to be here, guys. Thanks for having me. Now, what we're going to do today is we're going to have a conversation about whether Christians should set aside masculine names for God in favor of feminine or gender neutral names. Now, feminist theologians have been arguing for years that calling God Father and Son depicts the Godhead as an oppressive and abusive patriarchy. So for that reason, they would argue that we should address God with feminine names or perhaps even gender neutral names. So instead of like father or son, um, we might name God as mother or child, or instead of father, son, and Holy Spirit, we should refer to him uh, maybe as creator, redeemer, and sustainer. So should Christians set aside masculine names for God in favor of feminine or gender neutral names. That's what we're trying to get to the bottom of today. And this has become a a bit of a conversation recently because um, if if you're online, you'll see people talking about this. But uh, for us, it's come up because there's a a book that came out last year, um, not by somebody who's a radical feminist, but by someone who's an egalitarian. Her name is Amy Peeler, and she wrote a book called Women and the Gender of God. And she makes the case in the book that using masculine terms to name God, using those exclusively is wrong. Um, She says that we should maybe have a preference for the traditional naming of father and son, but we shouldn't only be using that. So she, she would argue that parent or mother or just as equally faithful ways of referring to the first person of the Trinity. And so these are the issues that we want to kind of hash out today and try to think of this from a biblical perspective and then think of it also from the perspective of the tradition. What is the great tradition taught us about these things? So um, Kyle, I'm just going to go ahead and and ask you, um, how do you see this conversation, conversation shaping up? Um, are you is it are you viewing it basically along these lines? Yeah, thanks, Denny. So, you know, just to add to that briefly, another thing that's caused it to be all over the internet lately is the Anglican Synod recently met, and there's news coming out of their national meeting that they're renewing their efforts to try and come up with more gender neutral, less offensive gender language for God. And sounded very similar to what Peeler's trying to do, not removing the masculine names from our vocabulary, but balancing them with other names and other titles. So that's another thing that's made this perennial issue become something of a dust up again. And, you know, I think that there's a number of things we have to think through carefully. And the reality is that one point that's being made by those who want a balance is that we should not argue that God is male, right? That we we need an appropriate theology proper that recognizes God as an infinite, eternal, incorporeal spirit. He's not uh, an embodied creature, and as such is neither male nor female, right? So it sounds like when you read someone 
like Peeler to some extent, but especially some of the language coming from others in response to the the Anglican news and other literature that's been out for a long time, the argument is being made, well, since God is neither male nor female, that justifies us using both masculine and feminine names for God. And I think that's just a fundamental mistake in our use of theological language. And it's a fundamental misunderstanding of the way God names himself in scripture. So what you instead ought to be doing is recognize, yes, God is a an incorporeal spirit, infinite, eternal, simple, and thus neither male nor female, but also as creator, God has the right to name himself and he names himself in his revelation. And so really central to this whole discussion is whether or not the name father is a divine name or whether it's merely a kind of anthropomorphic description of God. You know, any one who wants to be faithful and sound in their reading of scripture recognizes that the Bible uses anthropomorphic language. And what do you mean by anthropomorphic? Folks that have never heard that term before. Yeah. So anthropomorphic. anthropomorphic. Yeah. So it comes from two Greek words, anthropos, man, and morphos, meaning form. So anthropomorphic means in the form of a man. And it it means a, a way of describing God that's not properly or literally true of God, but is using the metaphor of human forms. So the obvious example of anthropomorphism would be something like when scripture says the eyes of the Lord, you know, that roam to and fro about the earth. And of course, that's a metaphor for God's knowledge of all things, that nothing escapes his knowledge, but we don't believe God literally has eyes. Uh, And that's what we mean by anthropomorphism. And there are some who think that the name father is an anthropomorphic name. And the idea is that the original of fatherhood is in the creation between a father and his children. And then that's sort of extrapolated metaphorically onto God. But I think what scripture would have us understand is that the original is God. And the analog or the analogy to that is in creation. Uh, And so I think this is what Paul's getting at in Ephesians 3 when he names divine fatherhood and says that from which every father in heaven and earth is named or all fatherhood in heaven and earth is named. So the, the original really is God as father. And so if father is a revealed name of God, then we don't have the right to tamper with it. Uh, and so I'll, I'll see if you want to follow up on that. I could keep going on and on, but yeah, Kyle, I have a question. Uh, following up on that. So I think everyone in this conversation has agreed that the answer to is God male is obviously no. God doesn't have a body. Uh, he's not sexed male. I think where things start to diverge uh, is the question, is God masculine? Mm. Um, and it seems like what what Amy Peeler's book does is, like you just said, it takes the name father as a creational analog instead of a um, a proper description of God is Father. You know, the Bible does say in places, uh, describe God in terms that is like a mother, but not in the same way the Bible says that God is Father. Can you help us tease those questions out? I think those are maybe yeah. the, the two uh, questions facing our listeners is God is Father, Uh, Does that mean that God is masculine in some way? Right. 
So, yeah, so just going a little upstream from the question you ended with of is God masculine, it's just the way we think about theological language gets so important here. You know, when I'm teaching at intro theology courses, I always introduce the idea of analogical language. And my contention, and I'm in, you know, I'm consistent with Christian tradition uh, across a very wide spectrum over a very long period of time and affirming that all language about God, including God's speech concerning himself, so including divine revelation, all language about God is analogical. And all that means at the end of the day is that we cannot fully comprehend or know God as God knows God. We can know God truly because he reveals himself truly, but we can't begin to know him comprehensively as he knows himself so that any term I use for God, even if it's a divinely revealed term, has meaning when spoken of God that transcends my comprehension and transcends my ability to understand it. All language is analogical, but where I think people then go with that is they assume that because it's analogical, it's therefore figurative. And it's it's a metaphor. And as such, as long as we don't sort of violate the metaphor, uh, we can say what we want. And what I encourage students to do instead is to recognize all language is analogical, but within analogical language, you have another distinction that needs to be made. And that is sometimes analogical language is literal. And by literal, I don't mean violating analogical language. I mean, it's something that's predicated of God in a more direct way, like a in the tradition, we use the term perfections, right? Something that's true of God as God and divine names would fit into this category. God names himself and we don't get, he doesn't just describe himself by metaphors. He names himself. On the other side, you have figurative language like anthropomorphisms that we just discussed and other metaphor and simile by which God is described. And the question is, does this masculine terminology by which God reveals himself belong on the figurative side of the line? And that's what Peeler and others are arguing. Or does it belong on the, what I'm calling literal or proper side of the line? Does it belong to the category of a divine name, which only God has the right to reveal? Or does it belong to the category of metaphorical description? And what seems clear to me is that father, God as father is naming God in two ways. One, it's naming God in relation to creatures covenantally. So Peeler makes an argument that the name Father can't be rooted in God as creator per se, uh, because God doesn't create the way human fathers create. And she argues that it, it can't be related to initiative. And she makes a number of, of kind of bad, what she sees as bad arguments, but what she doesn't deal with is the category of covenant. And if you look at Father language, spoken of God in relation to creation, it, it's always covenantal in some way. Even in its Old Testament context, when God is spoken of as a father to Israel, it's because of the covenant that exists between God and Israel. And so um, covenantally, God reveals his name as father. And then in terms of Trinitarian theology, the first person of the Trinity is named father. Um, and I think what you have to recognize about divine names is there's personal names that refer to the persons of the Trinity, 
individually. And then there are essential names that are true of all three persons in an undifferentiated way because they share one common essence. And so there's a sense in which the name father applies to all three persons because God is in a covenantal relation with creation uh, in that fatherly relation. And it's in that sense, an essential name. I think this is why Isaiah 9, 6 prophesies about Christ and calls him everlasting father, right? It's not confusing the persons of the Trinity. It's recognizing father as an essential name. It's true of all three persons in relation to creation. Um, whereas father in the Trinity names the relation between the father and the son. Either way, you're on the divine naming side of the paradigm, if that makes sense. So while scripture will speak of God with feminine metaphors, um, you know, it's well rehearsed in the feminist literature uh, that the Lord refers to himself as nursing Israel, right? And you have Jesus' famous statement that, you know, like a mother hen wanted to gather together the chicks. So you have various, what we might call feminine images. What you don't see scripture doing is ever naming God mother. And you also don't see scripture ever using feminine pronouns because the pronouns have their referent in the names. And so I just think it's a it's a fundamental category mistake that's not giving attention to the way scripture is describing God, the different ways scripture is describing God. Because it I have no problem with saying creator, redeemer, and sustainer. In describing the three persons of the Godhead, those are biblical images and perfectly fine, but those are not names that we should use in an attempt to balance Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? Those are just other biblical descriptions or calling God, you know, a rock, for example. That's a metaphorical would it imagery. Be a, would, it, would it be yeah. okay? Would it be okay then for churches to baptize people in the name of the creator, the redeemer, and the sustainer? No, again, because that the baptismal formula is given with those specific names in view. And especially, you know, part of it, too, is the baptismal why, formula from I'm thinking of Matthew 28 in particular. Yeah, right. So those names are given explicitly in Matthew 28, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And so the, the question then would become, you can say, well, by doing that, I'm still identifying the same three persons, but you're explicitly departing from revealed language that's associated with that right. So again, it gets to that same question of where do we have the right to modify? So well, why would we why would we want to in other words, if the scripture over and over again is calling God Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, why what could possibly motivate a departure from that language? Like in a baptismal formula or or even taking the Lord's prayer, you know, Jesus says he teaches us to pray our father. And you have mm -hmm. a, a, you know, a lot of feminists who are saying, well, you ought to be able to say our mother or our right. creator or, or God self, or, you know, some other gender neutral, or perhaps even a, a feminine uh, expression to substitute for the masculine one. And the more that, you know, that I read and hear of what they're saying, it's, it's an aversion to masculine expressions. Yep. Is what it's what's at the root of that. It's it's not just oh we're we're coming up with something more accurate here. Um, we we just don't want to use masculine language because the masculine language is fundamentally an abusive and oppressive uh, patriarchy, uh, and we can't have that. Um, 
you know, Mary, Damien, Mary Daly, the feminist theologian, famously wrote that if God is male, then male is God. And she yeah. seemed to think that if God is male, then being male is more divine than being female. And so for Daly, the view of God, that view of God makes him into an oppressive patriarch. And it would also give divine sanction to the patriarchy, which feminists define as an oppressive system of male domination. I don't want to argue over the terminology. I know that some Christians have been trying to resurrect the term patriarchy. Well, I will get into it a little bit. I I, I don't think it's completely helpful because it, the, the term's recent coinage is from feminists, uh, in, in, in particular, Kate Millett, who was you know, defining patriarchy as an oppressive system of, of male domination. Uh, but but in any, in any case, Daly says, you know, using masculine language is a feature of patriarchy. And so so I, I guess the, the question I want us to consider here for a second, and I'm happy to hear from you on this, this too, Kyle, do masculine terms for God give sanction to an oppressive system of male domination? And of course, the answer to that is absolutely not, because that would be to ignore biblical teaching concerning masculinity as such even right i mean the scriptures teach us what masculinity is and it's not what the feminists say that it is or and it's not what they say that someone to the right of them like us think that it is right so they seem to think that we think it's a kind of oppressive sort of authoritarianism rather than a self-giving, self-sacrificial, covenantal headship that entails genuine authority as given by God and a very real order between men and women. But it is oppression is the antithesis of the way scripture describes masculinity. Uh, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. So, so no, naming God in masculine terms, the problem is that we've allowed perversions of masculinity, sinful perversions of masculinity that do sometimes manifest themselves in oppressive and domineering ways. I mean, from the very earliest days of the fall, right? I think we probably would all interpret Genesis 3 in a similar way that when the Lord told Eve, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you, that that ruling over is describing a kind of sinful domination, not a covenantal headship with a delegated authority under God, but a kind of exercising the strength of his body in oppressive ways. And so there is a form of masculinity, I'm using scare quotes there, in our fallen world that is a gross perversion of biblical masculinity. And that's what's oppressive. And the mistake that's being made by feminists and others who are leaning in that direction with their arguments is assuming that that's what biblical masculinity entails. And it, it simply doesn't. So the, the aversion for masculine names is in part based on a confusion of the perversion of masculinity with revealed uh, ideal of masculinity, which is what we would want to uphold. Uh, and then, you know, when it comes to God, you know, Colin's earlier question really culminated in, is God masculine? Well, I'm going to want to really qualify in answering that question. <clears throat> it's kind of like, you know, if someone asks me, are you a Calvinist? 
right? If someone uses a theological term and they want a yes or no answer, I know that a yes or no answer might might not be helpful. Depends on what you mean. So if by masculine, do I mean that God is more like men than women in such a way that men are more pure or more complete image bearers than women? I don't mean that. Uh, I, I affirm that men and women both are created in the image of God. They, I would also affirm that they image God differently. Uh, they don't image God in identically the same way. They image God differently, but they're equally image bearers. And so the worth and dignity associated with that is equal. And so I don't mean that by masculinity. And I don't mean that God has a gender, right? I wouldn't want to say that. Because, well, that's kind of another word you'd have to unpack as well. Right. Because in, you know, in gender theory today, you know, the going rhetoric is that gender is entirely a social construct, that it it has to do with one's own conception concerning oneself so that I can be whatever gender I, I want to be. And biblically, right, we want to recognize that gender is more than biological sex. So there are there's there's social relational aspects of being gendered, but it's never separable from biological sex so that only a biological female can be a girl or a woman and only a biological male can be a boy or a man so that gender is corresponds to biological sex and thus gender is binary. So if someone asks, is God gendered? I would want to say, well, if you mean by that, does by is God gendered that it somehow corresponds to biological sex, then of course not, because God doesn't have biological sex. Um, and and then if you say, so God has a gender that's not corresponding to biological sex, well, that seems like that's an argument that could go terrible places. And so my answer would be just to say, God reveals himself with gendered names, and that these gendered names reveal something analogically about God. But the thing about analogical language is as soon as we recognize what's similar in the language, and we can talk about how God naming himself as a father corresponds to our creaturely understanding of father. But as soon as we do the similarity with analogy, you have to also talk about dissimilarity. Here's ways that God is not like a creaturely father. Um, and I think that the safest way to do it is just to say that God reveals himself with gendered terms and the gendered naming that God chooses is always masculine. And so we should not tamper with that. And then you then comes the question of okay, why? Why does God use masculine names and pronouns? And I think the ultimately the answer is going to be found in sort of a covenantal um understanding of scripture. But if they're divine names, we can't alter them or change them. You know, Kyle, I, I think about uh, especially pastors and, and counselors and those listeners who are encountering these things on the ground and they might be asking, you know, what what's the practical use of trying to figure out, you know, these high-minded theological questions about God's essence or something. But it was actually, I was listening to a podcast, the Holy Post podcast. They had Amy Peeler on as a guest and mm -hmm. they asked her the question, you know, how, say you have a counseling situation where somebody comes in the office and they say, you know, I've got really major daddy issues. You know, I've got issues with father imagery and here you're wanting me to pray to God as father. Is it okay if I pray to God as mother or parent, you know, for the time being, as I get over these things and her counsel was, 
yes, hmm. you, can, you can use other images or, or even uh, what she would term names to be able to pray to, uh, to God. And so she suggested that, yeah, you can for a time use those words. What, what do you say to that um, for somebody that is considering going away from using father as God's name is in prayer. You know, I saw the same report that you did out of the Anglican communion that they're considering these, these terms gender neutral. You know, we want to use gender neutral expressions about God, gender neutral pronouns, God's self, you know, gen- not exclusively he, him or father, son, et cetera. And I think in some ways, just taking a step back, this explains our, our situation right now in in our cultural situation where masculinity has become toxic and we started to talk about things like gender neutral bathrooms, gender neutral expressions, variety of varieties of gender outside the the traditional binary. Now we are talking about these things in terms of, of God's revelation. I think in that way, the, the tail is wagging the dog, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but what, what would you say to pastors and counselors and church members that are encountering these questions about gender neutrality in God? Uh, what are our options here? Do we have options? Hmm. Yeah. So, you know, when you tell someone you can pray to God by another name than what he's given himself and by another name than how he's taught you to pray to him, I, I don't see how that can be anything other than suggesting to someone that we have the right as creatures to name God. And if we're being attentive to biblical categories, naming is a really significant thing in scripture. Um, You know, God names mankind, Adam, right? The Hebrew Adam, which becomes the proper name for the male Adam, but is also the name for the race, much like the word man or mankind for us. And so, you know, God names mankind and God is the one who makes them male and female in Genesis 1, 27. And then you have Adam naming the other creatures over whom the Lord has given him dominion, and Adam even naming his wife Eve, over whom the Lord has given him not the same kind of dominion that mankind together, men and women, have over the rest of creation. So it's not a it's not a dominion that the man has over the woman. It's a headship, right? It's a helper and head relation. Um, so the woman rules with the man over the rest of creation, but she rules in an ordered relation to him as, as helper. But that's an that relation connotes some measure of authority because Adam names her parents name their children. And so when you tell someone in a counseling situation, no matter how moved you are by compassion for their real pain and for the real abuse, the horrific things that they've experienced, the solution for them is not to confuse the creator creature distinction, which I think is ultimately what's happening. What they need more than anything is more clarity than they've ever had on who God really is, on what it means for God to be a father. And this is where that analogical language is so important. The dissimilarity between names that are shared between creatures and God is even more pronounced in our fallen world. So when fathers behave in uh, wicked and horrific ways, we need to really lean into the dissimilarity of that and say, though the man whom you called father behaved in these ways, I want you to understand that God as father does not, that that what we need to do is, is try through patience and care and counseling, we need to try and reorient their sense of understanding of what the term father means in reference to God. So we don't want to give them the right to rename God. That's uh, ultimately treachery at the end of the day. 
Um, but we do want to recognize that the term father has been blown up in their mind. And understandably, it produces all manner of trauma. And so that's where we want to start working diligently to remove their the corruption of that understanding so that they can think of God as father in a right way. Just to follow up on that, I, I think that's why it's so important that we get that um the direction correctly in terms of the naming and in terms of the influence. Mm -hmm. If it is true that God as father as a concept is named after our creaturely conceptions of father, that does blow up the concept of God as father. But mm -hmm. if instead, as you cited from Ephesians three, every family is named from father above that every good essence of what it means to be a father is, uh, you know, is downstream of God as father and and so therefore we we should be able to redeem those those qualities those attributes of of God as Father um, in a way that's beneficial to that relationship and, and in a way that is not influenced in some way by our fallen creatureliness creature. You no, know, uh, Herman Herman Bavink um, said this about calling God Father. This is from Reformed Dogmatics, Volume Two. He said, "The name Father accordingly is not a metaphor derived from the earth mm. and attributed to God." Exactly the opposite is true. Fatherhood on earth is but a distant and vague reflection of the fatherhood of God. God is father in the true and complete sense of the term. He is solely, purely, and totally father. He is father alone. He is father by nature and father eternally without beginning or end. And the thing that strikes me about what Bavink is saying there is that we, we can't get this backwards. We can't say that father is something is a term that was, you know, created to describe human relationships. And then now God is using that analogically to try to teach us about himself. That That's not what it is. His fatherhood precedes all fatherhoods. And so when you have an abusive father or you have an abusive husband, what you have is a man distorting something that is pristine and true that pre-existed his existence that pre-existed any human fatherhood god's fatherhood is good it is his headship is good and wholesome and good for us his headship is a blessing to the world it's a gift to to the world and that's what it's supposed to that's what's supposed to be reflected in any human relationship of of fatherhood in a human relation of, of headship. So I don't want to take the, dis, you know, somebody who's distorted um, a, a good thing and throw away the good thing because somebody's, you know, distorting it. I, I want to hold on to what is true and I want to shun what is evil as, as the Bible tells us, but you're kind of throwing out um, by the Bible's revelation. If you're saying, well, you can just set aside this idea of fatherhood for now, because it's not working for you or because you've had some bad experience in your past. You know, I think the best antidote to somebody who's had a bad father is to show them a good father, mm. um, to, to show them that there's someone who loves them uh, so much that he self-sacrificially gave himself for them. And he continues to love them. Even when they are faithless, he, he remains faithful. Um, he's a good shepherd. So, I mean, so I want to teach somebody who's struggling with fatherhood, not to get rid of the category of fatherhood or set it aside for a while, but to teach them that what, what fatherhood really is all, all about. Yeah. And I think you can look to someone who's been traumatized by their father, who, as you said, this is a distortion of true fatherhood, which is who God is 
eternally, the first person of the Trinity in relation to the Son, and then relationally, relatively in relation to creation, God is Father. And there's a distortion, but you know, because that distortion's hurt their understanding, warped the person who's been hurt, their understanding is warped in terms of what fatherhood is now because of that. One thing that the biblical language, the way the Bible uses metaphor, so the Bible will call God a rock, right? That's not a gendered term. It's not a divine name. It's a metaphorical figurative term. Or when the Bible uses these motherly images, um, we don't name God according to those metaphors, but we can appeal to them. So I might, in a counseling situation, say to someone, who are some people in your life who have been, have provided for you? have been tender-hearted towards you, have been forgiving when you've wronged them, um, have been understanding, have been supporters, and try and and then not say, apply those names to God as though God can be called by, maybe it's their mother, right? We don't call God mother, but what I can do is say, the good things that your mother did in relation to you, the way she provided, the way she cared, those things are true of God as father. So I know they weren't true of your earthly father, but those things that that you recognize are good in the creation, those things are true of God maximally. We don't rename God in order to affirm that. We don't call him a kind of father-mother. We call him a father whose goodness is reflected in a plenitude of ways in creation that transcends even the best human father. And so, again, but but my goal would be to try and redefine the term father in light of God and try and sort of remove or help them recover from the distorted notion of father, but I'd never want to follow that with, well, since it's so hard, you don't have to call God father. Because again, I think that's a violation of the creator creature distinction at a pretty fundamental level. Kyle, I want to press into some theological questions here that are of really practical import. Um, You know, Gregory of Nazianus famously wrote for that, which he has not assumed he has not healed Mm -hmm. talking about Jesus, assuming a human nature and unless he assumes a full human nature, he can't heal sinners. He he has to, whatever he wants to heal, he has to take on to himself. If that's true, then how can a male Jesus save female image bearers? If he did not assume a female body, how can he save females? And as you know, Denny, this is a critical question. Peeler takes it up in her book and and others far more radical than Peeler have taken it up. So you have some have argued that Jesus was intersex, you know, the biological condition of intersex in such a way that he was truly androgynous. And in that way, I've even heard the argument that in that way, he was like the original Adam before Eve was taken out and arguments that Adam was an androgynous being. Um, And then, you know, Peeler is going to argue that there has to be some way that a male Jesus represents femininity. And she does it from the virgin birth because he came from a woman only, therefore he can represent women as mediator and redeemer. And I think both of those approaches just completely miss the point of the biblical storyline and the point that Gregory Nazianzen is making in his famous assumptus statement, right? Whatever is not assumed is not healed. And the point that's being made by Gregory, he's really just articulating the judgment of Hebrews 2, especially Hebrews 2, 14 through 18, that uh, he had to be Jesus in particular, the son had to be made like his brothers in all ways in order to be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation. So 
in order for atonement, propitiation to be made, the son had to become everything that we are. So what does that mean? Well, historically, the way the church has understood that, and I think the way scripture presents it, is it means that Jesus had to be everything that's essential to being human. So whatever it means to be human, essentially, Jesus had to be that. When Gregory made his famous statement, he was writing against a, a heresy called Apollinarianism, where Apollinaris, the heretic, was arguing that Jesus did not have a human soul. Um, he didn't have a human soul. He only had a human body. And Gregory said that doesn't work because that means he wasn't truly human in every way. If he doesn't assume a human soul, he can't save your soul. Right. And what what evangelical wants to say Jesus can't save your soul? But that's the what you wind up with. If you follow. And so Gregory was saying, no, the whole human nature. So the question then becomes, how does our how does our binary gender, our biological sex and our gender associated with that? How does that uh, relate to the essence of humanity? And this is where we have to be really careful in our definitions. But I think the, the best way I think the way scripture defines it, actually drawing on Genesis one, is that mankind is naming the species, right? Adam names the species in Genesis 1:26. let us make man, Adam, mankind in our image. And then verse 27, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So that within the essence of humanity, you have two types of humanity. You have male and you have female. And the way I teach this when I'm teaching Christology and what it means to assume a human nature is I teach students that to be human means to be gendered. It means to be either male or female. To be male is not essential to being human. To be female is not essential to being human, but being gendered as one or the other is. So in that sense, if Jesus was neither male nor female, then he was not human because he was not gendered, as all human beings are, according to Genesis 1.27. Um, being male, he was true human. He had he was gendered, and therefore he can represent all true human beings. And so I think the, the point of Jesus being able to represent men and women has to do with him being truly human and has not is not doesn't mean he has to. So in the same way, I would say gender which gender you are, male or female, is an accidental property. Um, analogous to this would be to say that Jesus doesn't have to have blonde hair to redeem every blonde-haired person. He doesn't have to have blue eyes to redeem every blue-eyed person because blonde hair and blue eyes are not essential to humanity, right? right? Those are accidental properties. Being gendered is essential, but being male is not essential to humanity, nor is being female. It's being one or the other is. And so because Jesus was gendered, he represents all gendered humans. Uh, and I think that's that's what Hebrews 2 is doing when it's saying he had to become like us in all ways, not that he had to have every accidental property of every person. Because that Kyle, can I ask a follow-up question on that? Would you yeah. say then it's though fitting for Jesus to be incarnate as male because he is the eternal son? So there's a there's a correspondence there. And also because he's male, he can function as a covenant head just as Adam was a covenant head. It's just yeah. that if he, if he was incarnate as female, there would, there would be a, he it couldn't have been there. either or in other words, yeah, he, he, could, have been gone just like, he could have been male, could have been female, just happened to be male. 
Yeah. So I think that those are the exact two reasons I would give Colin that you just gave. And I get asked this in the classroom all the time. So why did he have to be male? Right. If, if just being gendered makes him essentially human so that women are human in the fullest and unqualified sense of that word, why couldn't Jesus have been, or could he have been right? Hypothetically in a counterfactual kind of situation. And my answer is no, he could not have been for those two reasons that one, just the revelatory correspondence between the human life of the son, according to his human nature and his eternal divine life would be blown up. So you would no longer have the incarnation revealing who the son is eternally because he's eternally son. Again, that's a divine name of the person in relation to the father. And so you would have a, a daughter who's revealing the eternal son and the course, the revelatory correspondence would be blown up. So that's number one, because he's eternally son in the incarnation, he needs to be son. And then also the covenantal headship, right? I, this is where, uh, you know, the three of us are going to agree. The scripture is abundantly clear on this, that covenantal headship um, among creatures, right? Where there's covenantal headship at the creaturely level, it's always a man who's a covenantal head. And this is why it's the husband who's the head of the wife. Um, and and so, you know, and Adam is not only the head of his own wife, Eve, in the marriage relation, but Adam is the covenantal head of all humanity. And Paul uses this in Adam versus in Christ is covenantal language. And so uh, Moses is the mediator of the old covenant, right? So covenantal heads are male and, and this is by God's design. So for Jesus to be the, the last Adam, to be the covenantal head that removes the stain of Adam's guilt and makes us in Christ, the way God has ordered creation, he needed to be male. So yeah, I think both of those reasons are reasons to say, um, Jesus' maleness, his embodied maleness was not an arbitrary, you know, something like a divine coin flip. It could have gone either way. You know, Peeler has some interesting things to say about Jesus's embodied maleness. She says that because there was no male involved in Jesus's conception, because it's a virginal conception. So just Mary's body is involved, obviously, supernaturally overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. But that would mean just a female body is involved with his conception because of that his flesh derives from female flesh alone. And but for that reason, he's able to save both male and female sinners because he is male and has quote female provided flesh end quote. And so Peeler contends that the inclusion of male and female in the body of the incarnate Lord provides the Christological justification for rejecting an exclusive maleness in God. And it also eliminates the maleness of Jesus as support for a male only clergy. Of course, that's a, a, a different thing she's drawing out there, but I thought it was an interesting concept. And when I say interesting, I mean, I think it's totally wrong, <laughs> uh, but, yeah. but, but she basically says that he's able to represent male and female because he was derived from a female only flesh. And then his body was sexed as male but somehow that makes him a conglomeration of both male and female. It, it, it seems yeah. like that's the argument that she's making. And I, I've never read an argument like that one elsewhere. I've never seen it anywhere. And I'm not saying it doesn't exist out there. I've certainly not read everything there is to read, but it, it struck me as strange, a strange kind of special pleading. And I, I think 
even for Peeler's own agenda, which I don't agree with, I think her agenda is moving in a direction that's contrary to the direction we ought to be moving in this conversation. But even for her own agenda, I just think she would have been better served to argue that as a gendered human, right, to kind of move in the same direction that I just did, that because he's gendered, he represents all human beings. And then there are a lot of other, you know, arguments that people have tried to make for a female clergy and her own argument, I think would have been better served. So I, it was just a strange thing to me, how coming from a mother only, because if he's male, he has the Y chromosome. He just got it. Somehow God created the Y chromosome. Right. 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 And, and so I just, I fail to see how that argument has traction. And even some reviewers who are sympathetic to Peeler have pushed back at that point. I think because it just is so, foreign to scripture scripture doesn't isn't doing that with the narrative of the virgin birth and it's so foreign to the traditional to the tradition and how scripture has been read in terms of the virgin birth and the assumption of human to me it seems to come across like she's you know what he doesn't assume he can't heal and so this is the way that he can assume both male and female is by you know being male but being born of female only flesh when when it seems to me that she's saying he has to assume these accidental characteristics in order to redeem, which that's to me, the fundamental error um, is that he somehow has to comprise both in order to adequately represent, but that doesn't seem to to, be what the Bible teaches at all. It seems to assume an unqualified essentialist definition of gender. Right. And so which is ironic because so much of the narrative pushing, you know, in the opposite direction of wanting to use masculine language for God would, would balk at the idea of an essentialist definition of gender. But this seems to assume an essentialist definition that if he's not somehow female in some way, then he can't represent females. And I think that just misses the point that gender is essential but male or female gender as such is not, it's one, but it has to be one or the other, right. Or, yeah. or you're not human. And, and you would also, it seems to me the entailment would be, well, that any of us who have a mother, then even if you're a male, you're somehow part female. Because yeah. I mean, in other words, if, if you're taking your flesh from a female, it's your flesh coming from a female that creates some sort of, Female, half, half, half female. In other words, it, to me, it's 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 incomprehensible. I mean, it's not. It, it doesn't make any sense. It, it doesn't matter where your flesh comes from. If your body's organized for reproducing as a male, you're a male. If your body is organized for reproducing as a female, you're a female. You're a female. You know. It, in other words, if it, maleness and females is defined by the body's organization for reproduction, not by, um you know, the fact that you've got a male and a female as a mother, it, it, it they come together yeah. in a procreative whole, but you, it produces an either or. And um, so, and that's not diminished. You know, my maleness is not diminished by the fact that I have a mother, but it would seem like that that would be the entailment or the logic of, of the argument that she's making. Now she doesn't take it there. I'm, I'm just telling you that it would, yeah. I, I would think that it would entail that it would entail some things that would be, you know, absurd it does seem like she's trying to lay the groundwork for that line that denny you kind of just mentioned and passed on by 
that this argument would eliminate the maleness of Jesus as support for a male-only clergy. Mm-hmm. I think it's fascinating the way that these conversations are intertwined with the complementarian, egalitarian conversation. Uh, C.S. Lewis recognized this way back uh, in the 1940s when he wrote his essay, Priestesses in the Church. He, you know, He's tackling the question of women's ordination, female ordination, but he goes very quickly to uh, how kind of that that slippage or that um, that move actually has uh, implications on how we think of and relate to and and even call God. And so I, again, it's you know this book isn't about that, but it can't help itself but slip itself in here, you know, in that line page 145. You know, uh, w- one more thing here. I, I suppose we're running short on time, but um, it, one of the things I was noticing in Peeler's book, that is uh, a weakness. And I would say something that's problematic in in the larger conversations about um, how we name God is just a slipperiness in terminology. You know, Peeler argues not only that God is not male, but she also goes on to argue that he's not masculine, which I thought was really interesting because she'll, what she takes from that is that anybody that refers to God in masculine terms is potentially revealing that in their brain they have, they think of God as male biologically. Now that's a non sequitur because mm-hmm. you can use masculine terms for a thing, but it not be saying something about them essentially biologically. So I, I can look at a woman and, and say, you know, she has feminine, she has masculine features, or I can look at a man and say, you know, he has, he's, he, um, he has feminine features. Now, when I say that, when I use the terms masculine or, or feminine, I'm not saying that they're the opposite sex. I'm saying I'm saying masculine or feminine, referring to s- stereotypical things that aren't defining um, what what they are bi- biologically. And so, uh, all I'm saying is is that when some people say that God is masculine in that sense, they could be talking in terms of stereotypes, not in terms of there's a body underneath that. Right. And, and, and so when I hear people saying that God is masculine or, and you'll hear that, you'll, you'll read that in theologians, they'll say that there, there is a certain masculinity in God, but what they mean is, is that he is a, he's a creator, he's a, he's a leader, or he's a, he's a covenantal head. And they're associating some things that are true about God with some stereotypical things that you see in uh, human characteristics, if that's the right way to say it, but they're not trying to say that God has a body. Do you see what I'm getting at here? Yep. Yeah. So, and I think that's exactly right, Danny, and really sums up this whole conversation well, because if God's revealed names, his personal names of the persons of the Trinity or essential names that are true of all three persons and his, his perfections, right? The attributes that are true of God in himself. Um, if the fact that feminine imagery, so to speak, like Yahweh nursing Israel means that we can call God mother, um, then it breaks down these categories. And as I was reading Peeler, you know, suggesting that because of these feminine images, we can call God by these gender neutral or even feminine names. And that can be helpful. In addition to father, I made me think of Paul when he wrote to the Thessalonians and first Thessalonians, and he talked about his care as an apostle for the Thessalonian church. And he says, as a nursing mother cares for her own children, so have I loved you. Right. And it would be nonsense to say that because Paul uses that feminine image, that his care for the Thessalonians was like a nursing mother caring for her own children, that therefore we'd be okay calling Paul a woman, 
that we would be okay, like renaming Paul as Pauline to be more feminine. Like that's a complete non sequitur. And it, what it does, it illustrates why these categories are so important, right? That who God is in his revelation based on his, the names and attributes by which he reveals himself aren't to be confused with the sort of metaphorical descriptions of his character that are drawn by analogy from creation, right? These essential names, personal Trinitarian names and perfections are the original and the creaturely reflection of that is the analog. The other, when you're using this, these metaphors, the creature is the original and the analog goes toward God. And, and if we get those mixed up, then our theology proper is going to come crashing down. And I think Peeler, and she's not alone. I don't want to just pick on Peeler. Um, you know, there are many others who make these arguments in more extreme ways even than her, but they're they're making that point of confusion and, and the result is going to be theological disaster. It seems to me if I were to try to charitably sum up Amy Peeler's argument, she would say that we should preference paternal language for God, but not be exclusive in our paternal imagery and our in our naming. And the reason why she, we should preference father is solely based on the fact that Jesus himself uses the term father. And the reason why Jesus uses the term father is because of the incarnation, because he had a human mother and a divine father, which in my opinion, uh, my read on this makes God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit dependent on a creational redemptive yeah. category. Oh, it does. Which, which then I want to follow up with the question, is God Father, Son, and Holy Spirit before all creation? I think Amy Peeler can't answer that in the affirmative. Is that, am I reading her correctly? She didn't put it in those terms, but um, I think that is the unavoidable entailment of her argument. Um, if God is only named in masculine terms because of those creature rea creaturely realities, that is the entailment. Whereas we would want to say, no, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from all eternity. It defines the inner triune life from all eternity. Before there was ever an incarnation, God was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is The Father is unbegotten. The Son is begotten from before all creation. And so the naming of God is pointing to those realities. And that's what I think her, her presentation in this respect, I think is what it misses. Yeah. And I think Peeler would of course affirm the eternal relations, the distinction of the persons eternally. So she's not going to, she would never affirm that, that the persons of the Trinity came to be the persons in the economy of the incarnation and the sending of the spirit She's going to say it's an eternal relation, but what she does say is that the preference for naming God as father is from that incarnational, you know, that the name right. father is something of a placeholder, a necessary placeholder, because there's a mother and there's a son. So what do you, what are you going to most naturally call the one who provides what's lacking where the human father would normally be? Because I think the point is definitely the case that she is moving from a creaturely relation and, and so the analog is in God, right? So the name is applied to God metaphorically with the true sense of the term being in the creature. And we're saying, no, Father is a divine name. That's why the Son calls the first person Father. And the fatherhood of God is not exclusive to the incarnation. And just even the grammar, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son. 
right? So that, um, and then when you have the Jesus talking about the father sent him, I think he's naming his relation in an eternal sense that he is, is the son of the father who was sent and didn't become the son of the father by being sent. So, and then Ephesians three, I think it's verse 14. Am I right? We're just, that text is so important. The ESV, I think, uh, badly mistranslates it. Yeah, so it changes that patros root to family. So the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. But the, the Greek text more accurately rendered that the father, God the father, from whom all fatherhood in heaven and earth is named. That's telling us where the original is and where the metaphor is. And that's just a dangerous reversal. For sure. And it could lead to a kind of modalism like you're describing, Colin. It played out. I think we could go on talking about this for a long time, uh, but we should probably wrap it up here. Kyle, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and discussing this with us. Um, hope we can have you on again another time, but this has been a great discussion. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. It's my honor to be here. Appreciate it. Resources like the CBMW podcast are made possible by generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider giving at cbmw.org forward slash give. Thanks for listening.